Welcome to Wisdom Personified, Conversations with Dudum Somi, a passionate and relentless pursuit of exploring how individuals use good judgment in everyday life, both in their personal and professional lives. Hello, welcome to another episode of Wisdom Personified, Conversations with Dudum Somi. I hope you have been enjoying the series so far. I am very excited. Today I'm talking to Shireen Shengadu. She is the CEO and founder of Shengadu Advisory. It's a leadership practice. Shireen, thank you so much for giving us the time. I've been trying to get you to do this for a while and thank you for finally being available. Um, you know, we work together quite a lot, but, uh, and, and we find ways to slip <laughs> in the personal here and there. But, you know, we don't really talk much about your upbringing. We've, here and there, what was your upbringing like? What did you get up to? Oh, my Lord, how much time do you have? <laughs> <laughs> Firstly, thank you for being persistent. Yeah. I know I've been quite elusive and with time constraints, mm-hmm. but we make a plan. Yeah, yeah. And so thank you but for you that. Are my upbringing is a very important part of who I am. In fact, everything I do, I start with the story of how I got into the room. Yeah. And how I got into this room is, well, we won't go into the natural process of yeah, yeah, being please. born, <laughs> but, <laughs> but two incredible women, my mom and my gran, they Paternal, were maternal, gran? Maternal. And my dad passed away when I was two. My sister was, was just born. Yeah. Um, my mom, who was a working class woman, worked in a factory, and she did more than most mm. people who are now endowed with so much can achieve. Yeah. And she was able to, to make sure that every one of us who went to university or were educated because we strongly believed in education being that game changer. And there was nothing that was impossible. Um, I remember being a persistent child wanting a pair of boots mm. um, and she would say, you're going to get it at the end of the year. And I, w- and I said, no, I want it now because everybody else mm. was wearing But she would make a plan. She took on three or four jobs. Um, my um, my uh, grand was the one who raised us. So when you come home from school, yeah. we had a hot meal. Mm. We were cared for, um, well taken care of. And so these two women are my first role models yeah. of women leaders. Um, and, um, you know, I grew up at the height of apartheid, mm. um, went to school in that period, a very volatile period. Um, so I, I would guess that activism yes. or this wanting to be a part of the um, agenda that makes a change mm has been in my blood. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I remember when I was in Standard 9, we used to call it Standard 9. Then. Yeah. Um, school was disrupted. And that's the disruption. It's almost, I'm seeing the, the whole circle come yeah. full circle. And it's that energy that brought us into this room. Yeah. It's my siblings and I, we, what we lacked in material wealth, we had an abundance of in every other way. Yeah. And so my story, in fact, I grew up in Chatsworth, not born there. I was born in a, in a what is now an affluent suburb in Durban, D- 
Durban North, but because of the Group Areas Act, we were displaced. And my mom, oh, God bless her soul, she found, made sure that we had a roof over our head, food on the table, educated, and I did get my pair of boots. Yeah, after all. After all. But what was your most treasured memory in childhood? Just the most treasured. Playing with wild abandonment. Yeah. This, the, you know, playing on the street. Yeah. Playing cricket. We didn't have cricket facilities. Mm. But playing with the young boys and girls on the street. Um, being carefree. And the reason I talk about that so passionately is that our children today don't do that. Yeah. They can't do that because we're probably too afraid to let our kids right out of our high walls and our gated communities for fear of what's going to happen. Yeah. So my childhood um, was a beautiful one. Mm. Um, um, I always think of a pink and blue, a pink and uh, purple ponchos. Do you know what ponchos yeah. are? We call them throws and wraps yeah. and whatever now. I, I can't visualize it, but I know the name. <laughs> Poncho, yeah. Yeah, and I remember all the neighborhood kids mm. would have a different color. Yeah. And it was just so amazing. So, you know, grew up, of course, because of the apartheid system, we lived in an Indian community, a working class Indian so community. It was, and, and what was other beautiful thing about that community? It took a community to raise a child. Yes. Whether you were doing good or anything that was out of the way, the, the community was there. Mm to look after, support, advise, and, and tell and, on you if you were out of order. on you. Oh, yeah. yes, I have memories of my brother gunning yeah. for me because somebody told him that I was probably talking to a boy as yeah. I walked home. And so, uh, but, but it, was, it came from such a beautiful place. Which is interesting that you're so much in, very passionate about diversity. Having grown up in a community which everybody looked the same, where did that passion for diversity come from? I was alert from a very, very young age that there were people of different race groups, but we never mingled. There was a them and us. Um, I think we, the, the period in which we grew up was the height of the apartheid struggle in this country. And so if you were not attuned to it, it, you, it would, would have meant you were living with blinkers. Yes. So I was totally clued with um, and attuned to the fact there was the them and us. Um, I love telling the story of my, um, and I, I, I call him my brother because we, my, my mom and her brother were the only two siblings, which is unusual for an Indian family mm. as well, because you usually Small have, family, yeah. yes. And my, my cousin, my um, cousin, who, like I said, I thought of as my brother because we were raised that way. He was dating a German woman and he was, he was caught for the Immorality Act and he was in prison. He and Amy, his, uh, the German woman he was seen, she was pregnant and they had to leave South Africa. And Oliver was born in Germany um, and uh, we saw it firsthand. You know, the, the special branch police knocking on the doors because Peter used to live with us. That's why I say... He's my brother. brother yeah. And um, sometimes Peter would live with us. And the hounding, the unrelentless hounding, 
just on the basis of the color of your skin. Because of who you love. Of who you love. Yeah. Not who you are or who you could be or what you could be and what you could contribute to making better justice society. Yes. But on the basis of the color of your skin. It's like, how dare you? In the midst of everything you've just told me, what do you think your unique um, value proposition is? What makes you memorable? If you were not here tomorrow, which I hope you are, what will I miss? I'm ready for tomorrow, because yeah. I, I live my best life every day. Yeah. Um, I, I have a fiery nature. Mm. And my family knows it. The people I work knows it. I remember um, my previous boss, um, and I'll name him because he plays a special role in my yeah. life, Nick Benadel. Who's the, who was the founding director of the Biz, Gordon Institute of Business Science, he one day said to me, where do you get your fiery nature from? And I said, if you think I'm fiery, wait till you meet my mother. <laughs> um, it's double trouble, yeah. And, I mean, it's not a unique value proposition, but it's a good start to what makes me me. Yeah. Because um, I won't back down. When I know I'm right and I know it's going to benefit people other than myself, because it's not about an ego system, it's an ecosystem. I will not back down. Yeah. I have major scars to show for those battles. Mm. Um, but my unique value proposition is this, uh, you know, unrelentless search for making this world, this country, and the lives of people better. Yeah. Even if it's one person, I would have made that difference. And my work the way I live my life, my work, whether it's lecturing in the business school, whether it is the whether it's my consulting to corporates, whether it's me research and writing, or whether it is the people who surround me in my society, I want to make a difference. Yeah. And I live every day in that way. Um, I don't always get it right because there's so many things that come in from various angles. But every day when I wake up, that's my prayer. That. In the midst of that, what do you do for fun? Because I'm starting to think, gee, are you that intense? How no, do I know. But I would like the rest <laughs> to of do. them to know. Because I know the other side too. Oh, no, no. I, I think I have a passion for life. Yeah. Um, it's a deep passion for life. And, and it comes from you never know what tomorrow holds. And so, um, you know, before we started the formal interview, I said I loved that question when I saw it. My passion is to eat well, laugh well, love well, live well. I suppose my pastime is eating. Yeah. And it probably, and it probably <laughs> shows. And yes, lots of good gin. Yeah. You know, um, and I've been a gin drinker as long I was allowed to drink. Yes, yes. Um, it's not so a fad. Like, it's not. Know. No. In fact, the probably, rest of them, welcome yeah, to the party. Because yeah, yeah. <laughs> I am a trailblazer. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, so it probably links back to, in many ways, a trailblazer. I will be the first. Yeah. And so um, food, family, um, travel. We love um, traveling as a family to far-flung places. Um, um, going beyond where tourists go. Yes. Because yeah. the, the I'll, culture I'll the of like people yeah. and what culture teaches you mm. is not the stuff that gets reported in Lonely Planet yes. or on the travel channels. Yeah. So, But of course I do have my boundaries because yeah. there's some things I just won't do yeah. because I have some fears that I'm still working through. Yeah. Um, but I'm prepared for a good adventure. 
always. So, so I work hard, but I play hard. Yeah. And for me, that is, it's not a balance, but it's how I integrate life. You know, as you're talking now, in my childhood, even to my adulthood, Indians have always been seen as conservative. <laughs> You've never struck me as like the stereotypical. Do you fit within your community? Yeah, that's such a beautiful question. Because stereotypes box us, yeah. right? And so I think the way we were raised, we were not a stereotypical mm -hmm. Indian family. Firstly, my mother was the head of the household. My gran was in charge. Um, we, I, I had my first toy that I had, it's not a toy, a very beautiful car. Yeah. Oh, I love cars. So, so it probably stems from then. Um, my dad, he probably gave me that as a gift before he died. Mm. Um, it was a red racing car. You know, it's one that you could sit in and you could yeah, pedal. Yeah. So mm -hmm. I didn't have, so a, I didn't have a tea, yeah. I didn't have a tea set. Yeah. And a doll. And a doll. I don't think I, I can't remember a doll. Yeah. And it probably links back to where I am right now because people often laugh, people who know me well, who come to my house and say, why does your pot drawer have no pots? And I said, why do you need the pots if, you, if you're not cooking? You know, so that's not... <laughs> if a woman that doesn't cook, oh my god. But gosh. I must say, my husband makes the best lamb curry. <laughs> so we have a kitchen because it came with a house. Yes. But my husband... Is, so, so in many ways, the stereotype of where your place is as a woman, as an Indian woman, was never my frame of reference yes. from the time I was little. Yeah. And like I started off saying to you, we were told and brought up, raised to, with the notion that you could do yeah. anything. And I started off telling you the story of us playing cricket. Yeah. I mean... Uh, yeah, with makeshift cricket bats. <laughs> so, so not stereotypical at all. And, and, and probably, Dudu, that is a problem mm. for people who box people. Yeah. Which is why I suppose you are able to be such a wisdom voice in the space of diversity, because you live that. You understand, you know, it's, most things, it's not about color, it's not about gender, it's these other things that we also ignore. In South Africa, you know, in KwaZulu-Natal, my home province, where I'm originally our from, province. our home province, the Indian and African community have had conflicts over the years. Um, you know, I don't want you to be the spokesperson for Indians, but where does that stem from? Why do we have this intolerance between these two races? So I'm glad you said that, that I'm not the spokesperson, because I think you this is better probably handle the answer by somebody who has expertise in the history of this. But I want to start off by saying, it's interesting how we've made this about Indians and blacks in, mm. in, in, in Natal. In Natal. Mm. Surely the bigger question should be, we both, mm. both race groups were victims of a system. And which put that, us in a hierarchy. Which put us in a hierarchy. True, mm. not of our doing, because mm. remember it was a, a systemic way in which we were kind of built in into that hierarchy, as you call it, so that we don't unite. And and part of that, in fact, when I was looking at Mum Winnie's documentary when she passed away, and I was thinking, because I'm going to liken that to the question you're asking me, how a system, a machinery 
can cause far more damage than the reality of what it is. Yes. And, and your question then takes me to that point. From what I remember, um, and I did study history at university because I think history matters. Beautiful yes. book called mm. Why History Matters. Mm. Is that the 1949 riots was a part of that machinery, of that systemic way of pitting one against the other. And you took your eye off the real thing yes. that was actually at the core of our problem. Which is happening now even. Isn't that the, so? How? We're calling it xenophobic. It's not. It's uh, an economic war. Absolutely. And we keep on adopting uh, labels that are not of our making. So when you say the intolerance for each other, I don't think it's intolerance. I think it has been maybe uh, both sides, victims of a system. Um, a system that was by design, and I'm saying this very, very emphatically, because like you say, that by design approach, we've seen it play out now. I think, I don't want to get locked in that past, but yeah. I, I want to offer what I the think could up, be a way still, out, yeah. of course, because it's, it's more important that we talk about solutions. So that we're not manip manipulated by politicians, because this is what we're getting Absolutely. into now. Yeah. And I think it, is, it comes back to this basic thing of humanity. When we start to talk and understand each other and how we got into this room, the beautiful way in which you started this interview, because you will not know me, really know me, if you don't know how I got mm. to be here. I may be sitting in this affluent suburb today, but that's not the story of who I am. The story of who I am is how I got into this yeah. room. And so what we need to start to build on, and I want to extend it to where we are in 2019, is that let's move beyond the superficial. Let's get back to basics of understanding, why don't you like me? Mm. What, is it that, what is it about me that jars you when I walk into this room? And Lord knows you and I both have had tons of experience of mm. that, the way we look the way we are fiery, the way we stand up against that which is wrong. And people, that makes people uncomfortable. So there's a level of discomfort between the two race groups, but we haven't addressed the root yeah. of the problem. And what has happened in the process is that we've built on this over a period of time through judgment. And when you judge, you, you stop learning. Mm. It's time to suspend judgment and to understand what makes you, why do you feel this way when, when you're in my presence? Why do you think this is an Indian versus a black, whether it is, you know, when I look at, uh, I mean, we talk so much about black, white, Indian. If you were of colored, what we call the colored race mm. in this country. The mixed race, yeah. The mixed race, you know, I'm using the, the terminology of what people commonly refer to people of mixed race. Where do they fit in? Mm. What's their voice? My question is, when do you stop being colored? Because in my background, there's mixed, so when do you stop being colored? But that's another... Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's we another, can do that yeah. another time. <laughs> but of course. Yeah. But, but, isn't, uh, but before we move off it, isn't it, Bigger than now, if we're going to, what got us into the room was good enough. 
But how we're going to get to the next, next yeah. means we've got to stop having these superficial discussions. And I don't say superficial lightly, mm. because on the basis of race, we I, lock in things. On the basis of gender, on the basis of religion, culture, ethnicity, yeah. and so on. And the, the, the complexity of this is that there's an intersectionality of all of these th layers and they're happening at the same time. So that is why we're not solving for some of the, what I would consider some of the intractable problems that we are faced with, mm. because we're not addressing them in a holistic way. Yeah. Uh, when you talk about that, did you cover this in your book? Absolutely. Yeah. Because how was the process, just getting that wisdom out there in terms of women in leadership? Women in leadership is about talking about gender equality, yeah. but we cannot talk about gender equality without talking about the other areas that create a them and us. It could be on the basis of race, religion, class, sexual identity. Yeah. Sexual identity, which is such a big cutting edge aspect of our lives now. Are you judging on the basis of, you know, I think of castasomania. Mm. Brilliant example. And people class you or stereotype you on the basis of what you look. Yeah. And so th that was profound throughout this book. That set the premise for this book that we were not talking just about gender equality because we'd be failing. If we talk just about gender equality, we'd not reach equality because gender equality is one aspect of a transversal of all these other aspects. Mm -hmm, yeah. And age, you know, people, young people who are coming into the workplace, young people at university, are we judging them because they are young? Mm -hmm. But they may have some of the most profound knowledge and wisdom that we overlook yeah. on the basis of age. So that was covered throughout this book. It's a very complex topic, complex. which is why you offer the Women in Leadership at Gibbs, <laughs> part of your program, which I have you know, been very uh, privileged to present on. Thank you very much. But there was one um, session where a financial services company brought their technology department, and it's mainly women. But one of the senior managers said, you know, I have been coming and standing in front of a class for a long time. Every time we invite you to come to us when we're back in, in the office, not one African woman has ever. What did you think about that? You know, we get into classrooms, rah, rah, rah. We're improving ourselves. We get back into the workplace. We find situations difficult, and yet we don't go through the door that has been opened to say, mm -hmm. we have diversity challenges, mm -hmm. but if you want to come, come to me. Why are particularly the African women, mm. from your experience, not taking on that opportunity? So, so there's three parts to that. Mm. One is, um, the, I want to call it the colonial, apartheid, patriarchal mindsets that w with which we've been raised. Um, the belief that as a woman, you can't do, you can't be, um, there's, there's a barrier. And so you have to, and, and, and coming to my class is only the catalyst because I can't change and shift your behavior, whether it's three days, it's a year, you're going to have to work on this very, uh, Malcolm Gladwell speaks beautifully about 10,000 hours of practice. 
And you're going to have this narrative playing out in your head. You're going to see it every day in your workplace. You're going to see it in society. And so how you actually start to, to, to embrace this on a daily basis is how the change will start to happen. So, so it erodes confidence. You, I may instill in you this agency and urgency when you're in the presence of all these other women yeah. in the class. I'm giving you tools and techniques. But the first place is you've got to hold the yeah. mirror to yourself. And that's where I come in with my personal leadership. Absolutely. And, and, and the other thing is, let's, let's not make no bones about it. In this last week, the employment equity report was released. 70% of the senior roles in our country is still held by white men. So 25 years on. 70%. Yeah. And so while we are making progress... There's not enough headwinds. Yeah. And so when you're back in the workplace, this is what I encourage women to do. To not roll over and die. If you have to build your resilience, because the first thing is going to, you know, the rules are there. You, this is how we do it here. But the rules were created over the previous industrial revolutions for a particular kind of person in the workforce. Truthfully today, how many women are sole major breadwinners in their home as opposed to previously in the previous, gener previous industrial revolutions where men were the primary yeah. or sole breadwinners. Yeah. So those things have shifted, but the rules of the game have not. Yeah. And it's that that is so important that we've got, to, and that's what I teach the women. It's not about, I'm not teaching you to go and, you know, burning our bras, that was for a different time. The suffragette movement was a different time. Our battle is a different battle. But we have the confidence, we're smart. Look at 60% women coming out of university, gra graduates coming out of university are mm. women. So we've got that critical mass. What happens as we go up the yeah. ladder? We get stuck in the belly. Yeah. And this is where I usually say, it's like middle age, you know, oh, you gosh. go this around. <laughs> and then it's difficult. And then to it's hard out. to shift. <laughs> Absolutely. So I say, look, we're going to have to, we can only shift the style. Yeah. If we keep at it. Mm. We didn't get to 1994 without resilience yes. and keeping at it. Yeah. The resistance, the resistance goes on. I know you've just gone through a very painful time. You lost your brother. What wisdom can you share about the relationships and love we have of our siblings? Because, you know, when I try, I lost my only sister as well. When I tell people the things you focus on just don't matter. You know, when people tell me they're not talking, mm -hmm. it's like in the scheme of things, that is nothing from your experience. Mm. Interestingly, today is 40 days since my brother's passing. Um, so the family in Durban are doing a traditional prayer. So it's a special day. And, and I'm so glad that you're asking this question. I must question. say, I don't want to push my luck, but when I, I asked you this morning, I didn't know about the 40th, but I was actually thinking your brother is the one making you do this. Mm. So I thought it's creepy when you told me the 40 <laughs> days. And I thought, wow. So, so, yes, the loss of a sibling, as both of us know, 
is never easy. No matter what their mental or physical state. Um, and, and my brother was the only brother. So another non-stereotypical thing for an Indian family. He was surrounded by very powerful sisters. <laughs> In fact, my mother used to say, all of you talk at the same time. Who listens? Shame, man. <laughs> my poor brother. Oh, <laughs> he was the listener. He used to... But, but you know, Dudu, um, I think siblings are... When I think of us as a puzzle, each of us brings a different mm. part mm. of the puzzle. Mm. And that picture is never complete without... And God knows, you love them sometimes... You want to fire them sometimes. You want to yeah. sometimes. But I think it's that love that is a constant. Yeah. Even at the harshest of times and the best of times. It transcends all things. Yeah. It does. And it's so interesting because, you know, none of my sisters, uh, no, actually not none, but typically our sisters, we never end our conversation as a hard and fast rule with I love you. But my brother did that. Every, my sister did that every time. Every time. The first thing he would ask when we were talking to each other on the phone was he'd ask about every member of the family by name. Yeah. Which is a beautiful thing. Cause because of time, we usually go, how's everyone? How's the family? But he, but he would ask by story. name. Yeah. And at the end, the last words would be, I love you. I take that yeah. today. Today, I said that. I love you and I love you till the end of my time. Yeah. And I think it's true. You know, we all go through different phases in our lives. But what we learn as children growing up, when one gets hurt, mm. the other feels the pain. Yeah. And, 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 I th and I always, <laughs> I remember my son, who's the only child, um, could never understand this because he's our only child and he used to say mom I think you must go back to Durban and you must buy a big house and you and all of your siblings must live together because every you know every time I would say no I need to fly to Durban or whatever yeah. and he would go now when you go to Durban then you come back with all the issues of the family and I said but that's family you never divorce the good and the bad. Yeah. The, you, it's a package. It is. So while we may be able to fire, of course, not so easy, mm. people who work for you or friends, you can't fire family. Yeah. For me, I always think family is the first lesson of diversity. Absolutely. You know, all of us are so different and yet together we are so powerful. Of course. And, and you're right. Yeah. You know, I could talk to you forever. But li life and time is limited. <laughs> what wisdom would you want to leave us with to end our conversation? There's so many, but I, I'm going to actually do this. If you give me, mm -hmm. I've, it's a beautiful book, which I said I, you, I'll, I will get, I'll try and get you a copy of yeah. this. It's Wisdom by Andrew Zuckerman. And there were three little bits that I would just quickly take you to, um, in fact, the first one is that of Madiba. Yeah. It is what we make of what we have, not what we are given. That separates one person from another. Hmm. What we make, 
with what out of what we have. Yeah. And that, you know, in the context of, of what we're going through as our country mm. is so important. The second one is the famous Jane Goodall. Yes. Um, gorilla. Yes, the gorilla lady. And she says the very most important thing that we can do and try and get out of the mess we've made of this planet, both social and environmental, is to spend a little bit of time learning and thinking about the consequences of the choices we make each day. Hmm. And because it's time constraints, you notice I'm giving you sound bites. Yes. Alan Arkin says, either you're growing or you're decaying. Oh dear. There's no middle ground. If you're standing still, you're decaying. And boy, oh boy, the only day I will stand still mm. is the day when I flatline. Yeah. And I talk about flatlining all the time because average has no place in my life. And you definitely don't live that that time, no, for sure. So that is the wisdom that I, I would like to impart to uh, transcending all those things that, that we create artificial boundaries. Every one of us is unique. There's no two people who are alike. Go deep inside you and embrace that uniqueness because that talent could be the thing that becomes the game changer. Yeah. And so instead for of... For all of us, not just all you. of yeah. us, absolutely. And it links to the last point about I'm so over ego systems. It's ecosystems that is going to get us to the next level, Whatever. world, better country, better institutions, better worlds, because Lord knows we've got enough that is dividing us and causing disruption, not of a good kind, yeah. not as in disruption for the fourth industrial revolution, but the disruption that is created to, to create noise around the things that actually take us off course. Of course. Humanity. Yeah, that is key. I can't think of a better place to leave this conversation. Are you understanding why I insisted on having her? Thank you so much for another episode of Wisdom Personified Conversations with Dudum Swami. Thank you for listening to this episode of Wisdom Personified Conversations with Dudum Swami. Please also like, follow and subscribe to our channel and share the wisdom with your friends. I would love it if you could rate and review as well. Wisdom Personified, Conversations with Dudum Somi is also available on YouTube, Facebook Watch, Apple and Google Podcasts, as well as Spotify. Enjoy the wisdom journey.